let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again to ask for your help in hearing, hearing the truth about who you are, the truth about Christ, who he is and what he has done. We pray that the Holy Spirit will teach us, will show us the proper understanding of the things of Christ. We pray for everyone who is gathered here and those who are gathered afar, who are listening online. Lord, may you help us all. Help me to speak that which is true and faithful and help your people to hear that which is true and faithful. We thank you for blessing in Christ. And it is in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's go to Romans 1. Sorry, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 1 to 5. And this is going to be our message number 14 from the book of Romans. And we're going to be working our teaching from verses 1 to 5. And you know that we are almost to the end when we get to verse 5. Okay. <laughs> this is what, what Apostle Paul said by the Holy Spirit. What then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And that is the word of the Lord. And we have three titles. We could actually have maybe five or seven titles to go with this part of Romans 4. Number one title is, But Not Before God. But Not Before God. Number two, Abraham believed God. And the one that I've been toying with for the longest time that I love, that I, that's going to carry the message, is Lazy Boy Gospel. <laughs> lazy Boy. Lazy Boy Gospel. So we come to one of the most important subjects there is to know for all of eternity. Actually, I lied. We've come to the most important and only important subject that affects everyone on planet Earth born of a woman. And it is not global warming or inflation. The matter that affects everyone, and that is you and me included, is the question of how they shall meet with their maker, meet with God. Because every one of us has an appointment to meet with him and give an account. And that is the subject of justification. Yeah? So sooner or later, your number is going to be called. That's what happens when people die. People don't die because of COVID. They don't die because of sickness. People die because their time is up. God calls them. 
maybe an accident. An accident is just an instrument. It's a messenger that God sends to say, show your time is up. Okay? So, this meeting is true for even those who think that God does not exist. <laughs> Doesn't matter. There's no running away from this reality. So what really is the matter? The matter that the Bible is solving for you and I is to answer the question, how shall a sinner meet with a holy and righteous God and not be condemned? Okay? How shall you meet with God in peace? Not in pieces, but in peace. Because some people are going to meet with God in peace and others in pieces. Okay. So God is in the business of condemning sinners and also justifying them. Okay. So there's no one who gets to heaven because they died. I know it's popular at funerals to preach people into heaven. But people don't go to heaven just because they died. Nor do they go to heaven just because they went to church, grew up in the church, grew up in the pews. That will shock a lot of people because there's not much gospel understanding, teaching that is being done in the many so-called churches. Going to church does not save a person from God's wrath. You see, unless people understand the issues, they will not believe the truth. And so they will go to church or to any building that is open on Sunday and get busy, get distracted, get comfortable in lies. Churches, false churches, have this ability to keep you busy with a lot of programs, a lot of activities, but you're missing the point. Okay, let's go to Jesus in Matthew 16 and work much of our introduction from the words of the master, from the words of the teacher, and what, and hear what he had to say. Matthew 16, 24 and 26, 24 to 26. The Lord said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is to deny oneself and taking up one's cross in the matter of salvation? You see, Jesus was always preaching the gospel. When Jesus opened his mouth, he was always preaching. And when we talk gospel, we are talking about things that relate to God in the salvation of sinners through Christ. But many have been bewitched by the very charismatic preachers who come with a lot of very practical subjects, very interesting, moving stories, and they call their stories gospel. No, that's not gospel. That is called motivational speaking. Okay? It's called motivational speaking. It has nothing to do with Jesus and your salvation. 
It is an answer to the matter of your sin and justification before God. Your sin before God is so great, you need more than just a good motivational message. You need to hear about Jesus as we have the hymn, More About Jesus, Let Me Learn. More About Jesus. But back to Jesus. What is to take up your cross? Religion will tell you that it means to give up chocolate for Lent. Okay? They will tell you to fast and pray at the beginning of the year, 10-day fast, 15, 20, 30-day fast, change the kind of clothes that you wear, stop watching certain movies, and the list is endless depending on the church that you go to because false religion has a million tricks up their sleeves. Okay, they're always coming up with tricks. And religion will come and tell you to strive very hard, to be a good person, try hard to keep the law, and hopefully one day you'll be able to make it in. One day. One day you may just be able to finish your mortgage payment to God. Sin is a mortgage that one can never finish the payment of. It is not like our traditional 30-year mortgage for our homes. It is a mortgage of eternity in hell. If God leaves you to pay for your own sin, you will never be able to pay for it for all of eternity. So, there's nothing bad about trying to be a better person Nothing bad about being a good and decent person. But that can be a serious problem. Trying to be good before God. Right? That becomes a huge problem. Because that's not how salvation works. Salvation is not about you being a good person. It has nothing to do with that. And when you preach the way of telling people what they want to hear, you will never be short of listeners and followers and Facebook likes because of the kind of stuff that people want to hear, to be entertained. Some ear-tickling, ear-tickling ministries are always overflowing with people on Sunday, collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars if not millions, in the name of Jesus, in religious circles, all you need to do is to do some foolishness and put the name of Jesus to it. Yeah, just put the name of Jesus. But what is the cross for? Well, Jesus says, if you're going to have to live, you're going to have to pick up your cross, take up your cross. The cross is an instrument of crucifixion. It's an instrument of death. A death has to happen. Okay? So the cross that Jesus is asking and demanding to be carried is the death of your own self-righteousness. The death of your attempts to find heaven by something that you did or are doing. 
verse 25, still in Matthew 16, Jesus continues and says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See that the whoever desires to save his life, the person who is seeking to save their lives, is going to be condemned by their attempt to save their own life. They will actually lose it. You get condemned for trying to save yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. So what is the solution? Jesus does not leave us hanging dry. He continues and says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus puts himself at the center of the transaction of your salvation. So life, eternal life, righteousness, salvation is an exchange that happens by Jesus. Alone, Jesus does not give you an option. He makes it about himself. So you could say if Jesus was like you and me, we would say Jesus is arrogant. But that's what righteousness does. He makes it all about himself. Follow me is all about me. Verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This part of the verse is known by the majority of the people in the world. Even unbelievers know this verse. Muslims know this verse. I believe even some Buddhists. The problem is they do not understand at all what Jesus was saying. And it is mostly used, quoted by people when someone is caught in some serious sin or crime. And people in their self-righteous attitude will run to this. They don't even have to open the Bible because they know this by heart. They'll run to this verse to condemn that person. For instance, with the situation with R. Kelly, the singer, and these many shenanigans that have earned him 30 years of imprisonment, dude is 55 and he has 30 years. That's essentially a lifetime given his age. And so people come and say, we told you what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world with all his fame and money and lose his own soul. That's how a lot of people understand that. Okay? But that's not what Jesus is talking about. This has nothing to do with people's fame or their money. R. Kelly has not lost his soul necessarily because of his sin. He may actually gain Christ in prison if that's God's desire for him. Maybe this is the only way that he's going to be able to listen. God is going to isolate him 
so that you can speak to him because as far as God is concerned, eternity is what only matters. The life here is a vapor. So if it takes 30 years of confinement for R. Kelly to sing of God's grace, God knows how to do that. Okay? So, God is not interested in our comfort. He's interested in our salvation. Okay? So Jesus continued and said, Oh, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? See where Jesus is going. Many have gained the world through self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about. And they thought that there was salvation. So this text is not talking about money. It is talking about salvation. Jesus expanded and connected the conversation for us and told us about an exchange that relates to your soul, to your salvation, and said, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He spoke of profit and loss account and an exchange. This is all accounting language. So there is a profit and a loss to be had depending. Salvation is accounting. It is legal stuff. It is law stuff. Jesus comes with the knowledge that your soul needs an exchange. An exchange has to happen. Exchange from sin and death from the status of condemnation to something, to life and righteousness and justification. And there's nothing that is in the world that can do that for you. That's what Jesus is saying. There's nothing that is in the world good enough, valuable enough to make an acceptable exchange for your soul with God. If you exchange with your own righteousness, Jesus says that is a loss account. If you exchange on the righteousness of another, that is a profit account. And this profit account happens only when God does the exchange for you in Christ. Because men and women cannot do it. So everyone is busy exchanging going to church. All night prayers. What are you telling God for three hours that he doesn't know already? I'm serious. What are you telling God? God knows all things. You do not come to God to give him information because he is the source of all knowledge. So what are you doing for three hours? Jesus called it vain bubbling. Just foolishness. <laughs> and Jesus says much of the exchanges are lost statements. There's no profit there. Because people are clueless as to the issues 
They are clueless of who God is. So what does Jesus say in respect of this matter? Still in Matthew, but Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. That is a command and a statement of fact. Enter where? To God. To heaven. But why enter by the narrow gate? Why not widen it for everyone to get in? Some people are heavy. You can't force them through something that's narrow. You have to widen it, Jesus. After all, God loves everybody, right? Jesus says no. The way to eternal life is narrow. How narrow? Like going in naked, narrow. Come with nothing in your hands, narrow. No righteousness of your own. If the passage is very narrow and you have to go through, guess what you're going to do? If you're carrying luggage, you're going to leave it. If your clothes are too tight, you're going to have to take them off. And Jesus is saying, take all that off so that you may get in. Bring Nothing. That's the narrow way. The narrow way is because of Jesus. Because he alone is the way. And so we can say safely that Jesus is narrow-minded. In a very positive way. Because he's God. He does not negotiate any other way. There is no other way that is acceptable. So when Jesus says the narrow gate, he is saying him alone and his righteousness alone. Pay attention to this again. Jesus says there are two gates and both say heaven. They both promise salvation. But one is broad and the other is narrow. Broad and wide, the other one is narrow. They both promise the same thing. But one of them leads to destruction. Yeah? The broad and wide lead to destruction. And guess what? Jesus says that's where the majority of the people are. Safety in numbers. Or they have, there are 3,000 people. I don't think they could be wrong. <laughs> Jesus says, no, they're very wrong. <laughs> they're very wrong. So both roads are religious and have buildings open on Sunday. And sometimes Saturdays for worship. They do collect money. They always collect money. But they lead to destruction. But there is a narrow gate. And Jesus will tell us more about the narrow gate. Verse 14, still in Matthew 7. Because narrow is the gate and difficult 
is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. The way on the narrow is difficult. And there are very few people who find it. And that means there are very few people who actually know and believe the truth of salvation. There are few. Jesus said it. I didn't make it up. There are very few people on the narrow gate. And if God is not merciful to show you and I the difference, we also would perish on the broad and wide way. Okay? So, that takes us back to the matter of how shall a sinner find themselves on the narrow that's the reason why we are gathered this morning. We have to make sure that we are on the narrow. Because Jesus came speaking of the narrow gate. He came speaking about himself. And that offended the Jews. Who trusted in their own righteousness under the law. And the gospel that Jesus preached is the same gospel that Apostle Paul was preaching, the gospel of the narrow way. And people were getting offended at Jesus as they would later be offended at Paul and the other apostles. And they were seeking to kill them. The law keepers <laughs> were offended at Jesus for saying salvation is in him alone. And by faith alone. And the Lord keepers were offended at Apostle Paul for saying, By the deeds of the flesh shall no man be justified before God. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul was telling us the function, purpose of the law. The Lord does not make a sinner righteous before God. The law was given for a purpose. It's like an x-ray machine. It shows sin. It shows broken bones. It shows the disease. But it does not cure. If you have a headache, you're not going to get a cure from x-rays. If you have broken bones, you're not going to get a cure from excess. They will reveal that you have broken bones and stop there. You have pneumonia and you stop there. So that's the function of the law. It does not heal you. So if you try to go back to the law, it will only show your disease. It will never give you any hope. It can only condemn you every time that you fall. But then Paul came and offended, offended them even more by saying, A righteousness apart from the law has been revealed, and it is the righteousness of God, a righteousness which is attested or witnessed by the law and the prophets, that is the whole Old Testament. And this righteousness is by the faithfulness of Christ, in other words, 
It is the righteousness by the obedience or doing of the person called Jesus. It is righteousness that is apart from you doing anything to be saved. And you think that should be good news. To say, well, come into my blessedness for no other reason that, than that I was pleased to bless you. And people say, no, I don't want, I don't want that deal. I need to end this. Okay? People do not want to be told that they can't help in their own salvation. They still want to feel in control of things, control their destiny. And so they'll invent some very clever ways to keep themselves in the game of self-salvation. Yeah? That's what much of religion does. But the Jew was not happy about where the law had been relegated to because of Christ. As many today are not happy when we tell them that they are not under the law of Moses. If you have been saved of grace, you cannot be under the law of Moses. Christ has come and has taken the center stage and so they were not happy because they had made a huge investment in the law of Moses. The law of Moses was their life, the very Ten Commandments. Those were the life of the Jews. And they thought that by their good deeds under the law, God was pleased with them and would inherit eternal life. But Jesus came with the gospel that said, no, that is the broad way that leads to destruction. That is the law of trying to get into God's blessing by your own doing. That's the way of death. Okay. How is it possible that the law that God gave himself would become part of the broad way of destruction to those who seek salvation from it. But this is what besets a lot of churches, Seventh-day Adventists, and a whole lot of professing church groups who won't let go of the law. Why do they do that? Is because they do not understand the purpose of the law. As I said, the law was not given to make sinners righteous because sinners are lawbreakers by nature. Sinners cannot keep the law. That is why they're called sinners. Right? A skunk is a skunk because it skunks. So sin means to miss the mark of God's standard. That's what it means to sin. God has a standard, and if you fall short of that standard, you have sinned. It doesn't take one second for you to fall from the standard. Okay? So, 
what is this thing about God's standard? It is about his own righteousness. So the Lord demands not your best effort, but a life of perfect obedience from when you were born to the right last second that you died. Perfection. All the way through. In word, thought, and deed. Now, someone raised their hand who has been able to do that. I know Sister Cora has not been able to do that. <laughs> so what is the solution then? The solution is only to be on the narrow, the narrow way, the narrow gate. And God alone is he who puts you on the narrow way. Now, to the Jews who were hearing this, they had an objection. They were coming to Paul and saying, if the law cannot make me righteous before God by my doing, then why even give it? Why give me something that I can't do? The law should just be thrown out. And Paul countered that argument in Romans 3.31 and said, do we then make void the law? Do we nullify the law through faith? And that is a rhetoric question. And Paul answered and said, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. A few words on that. On the contrary, through faith, we establish the law. We have to define faith. Faith means righteousness through Christ. That's faith. Righteousness through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. To say I have faith it will rain tomorrow has nothing to do with Christ or salvation. That is not gospel faith. I have faith in the governor of Ohio is not gospel faith. Neither is I have faith in my faith. Oh, my faith is very weak these days. I wish I could increase it. It's very popular in Christian circles. I want to increase my faith. Like how? Eating Doritos or what? what how do you increase your faith? True faith respects the person and work of Christ. Two words in there. Person and work of Christ. Okay? So it claims Christ the person and possesses his work, his righteousness. Alone, not just the righteousness of Christ, but the righteousness of Christ alone is what will put a sinner on the narrow way that leads to life. But Paul says, through faith we establish the law. And we have reasoned before in two consecutive messages that this was not speaking to continuity of the law. Sorry. This was not speaking to continuity of the law on the redeemed. 
but was speaking to function, to purpose of the law in salvation history. The law had a purpose in the history of salvation. It was given to prepare the stage for the coming of Christ, to lay the red carpet for the celebrity. Christ Jesus, the only celebrity there is. Okay? So now that we are in Christ, we are not under the law because the law has done its work. Okay? So through faith, we establish the righteous claims that are in the law. Through faith, we establish God's righteous claim or claims about you and I as sinners, that God is just to condemn us because of our sin. And the law says, the soul that sins, it must die. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no cancellation of your sin. So the shedding of blood is the only God-given way for your sin to be canceled. And that's what Jesus has actually done. Jesus has canceled all your sin just as cancer goes in remission. If you are receiving good treatment, it means you carry the cancer, but it's not threatening your life anymore. So your sin has been put in remission on account of Christ. You are still sinning every day, but your sin does not condemn you anymore. That's what it means. Remission of sin. It's the same word for remission of cancer as it is for sin. Okay? So that's what the law is saying. Because if the law had no righteousness in it, then Christ would not have come to redeem anyone. It is the law that condemns because of sin. And for this reason, Christ came to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law. Not for everyone, but for only those that were given him by the Father. So we are a teaching church. And when you're teaching, you have to explain a lot of things. We just don't do things to get done on Sunday. We teach so that you actually know what you believe. And you can defend it. Even in the front of the devil himself, you should be able to defend the truth of God. So we take the time to help you understand these things. I tried to make my sermons short. We used to have a nursing home ministry and I'd go with one page of notes and still talk for one and a half hours. And then I gave up. God, even if you take away my notes, I'll still be talking. <laughs> So I determined that God wanted me to talk long. So he gave me the gift to talk. So from the legal standpoint, hear this. If a debt is paid, then it is already paid. It cannot be paid for twice. If and when that happens and you send two checks for the same bill, you're going to have a reimbursement. And God has already received the payment for the sins of all his people and there's no longer 
any need of you and I trying to make payment for that which was already paid. Okay? We just have to accept that all the areas have forever been settled by Christ. And where there's been payment or satisfaction of one's sins, what follows? When your mortgage has been paid, your car has been paid, you have all the money to send your kids to school, your retirement is fully paid, funded, what do you do? You rest. You rest. So the reason why we still keep working, Tuesday will be back on the clock, is because we have bills to pay. And we think that is the same thing with salvation. Salvation is already fully funded retirement. It's paid for, 100%. Okay? So the idea of rest or the Sabbath is about a ceasing from trying to acquire righteousness and justification by anything that we do by observing a particular day. There's no righteousness in observing a particular day. Absolutely nothing. There's no righteousness there. Okay? It's not about observing a particular day. It's about knowing that Christ paid it all for me, my retirement, my righteousness, all my sins have been forgiven. I am so ready to go to glory because I possess my ticket, my passport, my boarding pass. I have it complete here and now so I can rest. That's the Sabbath. Okay? That's the Sabbath. All this other stuff is foolishness. So that is true on your best day as it is on your very worst day. When you commit your worst sin as when you think you are doing very good, it's the same thing. It doesn't change. Okay? It does not change from day to day like weather. God does not suffer from schizophrenia. God does not. I'm going to deal with some people. Now, Paul is going to talk to the Jews about their forefathers who were very central to their history according to the flesh. And he's going to tell them that the doctrine of how a sinner is made righteous before God is not something new. It is not something that Paul had invented. It is something that God has always preached from the very beginning. Even such Luminary figures in the history of Israel as Abraham had been made righteous the same way. And if it was good for Abraham, they should also follow suit. And if they were children of Abraham, as the Jews claimed themselves to be, they should do the deeds of Father Abraham. That's Jesus in John chapter 8. Okay which was the testimony of righteousness that is apart from the doing of the law. You see, Abraham was pronounced as righteous before the law was given. To say 
Righteousness before God is apart from the deeds of the flesh. Is apart from you trying to do the law. And people will come and say, but what about the book of James? That will probably be my next message. We'll see. Because every time you tell people that righteousness does not come from anything that you do, they'll say, but James says, not this James, but the book of James. <laughs> but you cannot read the book of James if you don't understand the gospel. Okay? You end up on a treadmill of works, salvation. And the majority of people who run to the book of James rarely preach the gospel anyway. They use it to leave people in fear, in limbo, of always feeling that they are not doing good enough. They are not good enough. And surely it's good to leave people thinking that they are good enough. They are not good enough. But then you tell them about Jesus. Okay? But James is not talking about how you are made righteous before God. James, the book of James is talking about justification before other men, not before God. Because James is talking about the thing that we do as the community of believers. Don't show favoritism to people in the church. Don't have food and deny food or clothing to a brother or sister who is in need. That's what James is addressing. It is to the community of believers, of people who are already righteous. You are not trying to be righteous by giving me food. You are proving that you are already righteous. See the distinction. Okay? Simple distinction, but very important. But let's go to our text, Romans 4, 1 to 5. I needed to build that background. Paul then says, about Abraham. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? So Paul has this question with respect to Abraham. And that you say, what did Abraham do according to his own flesh that would have made him a righteous man before God? Because the Jews considered Abraham a very righteous man and a friend of God. But how did he get from the heir of the Chaldees, which is Mesopotamia, Iraq, Baghdad? That's where Abraham came from. Where he was making and worshipping idols. Did Abraham do some wonderful works that God caused him to say, or that God, that caused God to say, wow, Abraham, I had not realized that there were such good men in Iraq. <laughs> Let me see if I can call you a righteous man because of all these wonderful things that you have done. Paul says, no. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If Abraham was declared to be righteous by God based on works that he did 
Then Paul says he has something to boast about and say, see how good and wonderful I am. God looked at me and saw that I am a righteous man. Abraham could boast all he wanted about his goodness, his righteousness to his neighbors, to his relatives, but not before God. See that Paul says, but not before God. So that tells you that the righteousness that leads to life allows for zero boasting of any kind before God. Because boasting is really a big issue with God, especially in salvation. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of the gospel, is a righteousness that does not allow for any works of a person to be factored in in the matter of their own salvation. And that may sound to be very strange to a lot of people, but that is God's truth. Good works are good, but they will not save you from God's judgment. And there are no good works if one is not saved by the righteousness of Christ. God calls all the good works of men apart from Christ filthy rags and dung. Our best works of righteousness are like a filthy rag to God. Okay? This is what the scriptures teach about good works and salvation. Let's go to Titus 3. Titus 3. 47. Titus 3, 47, Paul says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here, verse 5 again, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We have been saved, we have been justified. Not by something that we did. So the but is making the contrast. According to his mercy. We have been saved by his mercy. God is not trying to save us. We are already saved. By his mercy. We are already justified by his mercy. And do you contribute something towards mercy? How much do you contribute towards grace? Nothing. That's the point. This is the narrow gate. The narrow gate removes all men of boasting. It also removes any idea of contribution. Because people are so used to the potluck type gospel. Bring something to Jesus. Okay, bring some Cheerios. And (laughs) 
But people are ashamed to declare of their own nakedness before God. People don't want to be found naked. That's why Adam and Eve, the first thing that they did when they found out that they were naked, they went and opened the first garment factory, the fig leaf garment factory, (laughs) and started sewing fig leaves to cover their nakedness. But even that was not good enough for God. God had to come and cover them. So salvation means God coming and covering your nakedness by something that he brings, by something that has died. And to the matter of shame and nakedness, Ella always says, when you're pregnant and in labor, and if you still are feeling ashamed of being naked because there are a lot of nurses and doctors, She says, then you're not ready to give the baby. (laughs) You're not ready yet. If you're still ashamed, you're not ready for the baby to be born. When the contractions get tighter and tighter and tighter, you'll be throwing all the clothes away. (laughs) No more shame. That's the narrow way you throw away your clothes and come to Christ with nothing, naked. Okay? But the Broadway people say, no, mercy is not enough. We must add some things to Jesus. And the the Judaizers will come and say, let us add law to grace. That is the most common one that you find in the churches. They always want to add law to grace. Add law to Jesus. Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. And they say, oh, that will make you complete. That shows your obedience. That shows your salvation. That makes you more holy before God. Add some salad dressing to grace. Right? Make it taste good. That's the way of death. 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 10. 2 Timothy 1, 2. 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 10. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, and grace which was given to us in Christ before time began. Do you see that? Saved us, that's past tense, and called. So God is the one who did the saving. He's the one who does the calling, not according to our own works, but according to his purpose and grace which was given to us in the person of Christ. And the question is, when? When did God purpose to save you? Is it when he saw you sitting in church? No. The text says, before time began. This is something that is not being declared in the churches. Before time began, God already determined for your salvation to happen 
he had already written down your name. And to that, no one got their names from their parents. You never thought about that. You don't get your names from your parents. Because God is he who wrote the names first. Because your name is going to match exactly what God had already written before time began. And your parents have a birthday. Just a few decades around. So, if grace and mercy were given you by God in Christ before time began, what are the implications of that? What can you possibly do to change it or to cause it? There's nothing that you can do to cause that. You can't change that. Can you sin yourself out of God's grace? Can you sin yourself and frustrate God's purpose from eternity because of some stupid things that you're doing? Do you think drinking five beers and ten beers will change that? Because that's what much of the preaching is. Oh, you have to stop drinking this. You have to stop watching this movie. So you're really telling me that God's eternal purpose from before time began is being affected by watching Harry Potter? Yeah? (laughs) God's purpose from eternity. That's the matter of the gospel. You cannot frustrate what God is determined to do. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It is all about him and his purpose. And he will do all his good pleasure and no one can frustrate his purpose and will. That's why you came and this makes sense. But this does not make sense to a lot of people. Actually, it does not. If this stuff that I'm talking about makes sense, God has done it. Verse 10 of Titus no, Second Timothy 1 still. But it has now been revealed by the appearing of our Lord Jesus, who has abolished death and, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So God's purpose in grace has now been revealed in the appearing of our Lord Jesus. And that means we do not make this purpose of God to work by our believing. Because Christ and God's purpose preceded our being born. It preceded our believing. The coming of Jesus was to consummate what God already started to do from eternity. So faith does not cause one to be on the narrow path. Faith does not change a god to a ship. Ship were always ship and gods will always be gods. Faith does not cause salvation. It evidences possession of salvation. You have to understand these things. Every statement that I make is well calculated. It's not random. Faith does not cause salvation. 
It is not what makes things right for you with God. When you decide. God has already made things right. He reconciled his people to himself. By the work of Christ. By the cross. It's done. So faith evidences that you who believe belong to Christ. So faith is given by God to all who should be saved, who were saved by Christ to say, oh, did you know that you actually belong to Christ? And what a wonderful thing. You see, much of the gospel preaching is very sad to me because there's no good news in it. It's all about motivational speaking. It's just giving you practical things to do for life. There's some good, useful things to talk about. But they are robbing people of the beauty of the gospel. Because God is saying, I have always loved you before I created you. And because I loved you in Christ, I chose you apart from any good or bad things that you did. There's nothing to do with you being good or bad. That's what God just loved to do. And because of that, I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to forgive all your sins. I'm going to remove your sins from the east, as far as the east is from the west. I won't remember any of your sins anymore. God does not remember any of our sins. The ones that you did yesteryear, and the, especially the one or two sins that you know that always bother you. They just come when you're driving in your sleep. They come, they haunt you. You're the only one doing the remembering. God does not remember your sins anymore. That's wonderful stuff. Okay? That's stuff that you can use on your dying bed. Yeah? Let's see where we are. So we're speaking to faith being evidence of possession. Faith tells you that you are on the narrow way. So Abraham did not put himself on the narrow way. He did not. It was granted him from eternity. As the Lord said in John 6.65 that no man can come to him unless it has been granted them to come. No one can come to Jesus unless God grants it. Go outside and say, do you want to come to Jesus today? <laughs> See how many people come. So Abraham could boast to his neighbors about his goodness, but he could not boast before God. And that tells you about some very important aspect of the gospel, as I said already, but it's worth repeating. The gospel of God's grace does not allow for boasting of any kind Okay, If anyone thought they were saved because they chose Jesus, they invited Jesus, and they made Jesus Lord and Savior, that's the kind of testimony that God hates. He doesn't like anybody who comes with a very well-polished resume. When you come into God, you come with a resume that only has one line that says, sinner saved by grace. <laughs> okay? The shorter it is, the better for you. 
the shorter it is, the better for you. Okay? So God is he who has chosen people to salvation. God is he who has redeemed his people. Right. Let's go to verse 3. Romans, we're almost getting done. If you can believe a preacher. <laughs> verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And that is coming from Genesis 15, 1 to 6, and we need to go and read. This is how you do church people. You have to bring all your arguments from the text. Genesis 15, verse 1 to 6, Moses recorded and said, And this thing, the word, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look, now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness. That is the bedrock of all of salvation. That verse 6. It's the foundation of the gospel. The one who would come from Abraham's body, the heir was not Ishmael, whom he had with Sarah's maid, Hagar. It was going to be Isaac, but it was more than Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham and Sarah, but Isaac was only a type of Christ. Our blessing of salvation was not coming through Isaac himself as the heir, but through Christ, who was the heir, the son of Abraham. Okay? So you need to understand that about typology. So Abraham believed what God told him, the testimony of the heir, the testimony of Christ. That's what God was talking about. God was talking about Jesus. Because it is through Christ that all the nations of the world have been blessed. Not through Isaac, but through Christ. Abraham believed God, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. This is how Abraham was made a righteous man. This is how he got eternal life, forgiveness of all his sins. By and through faith, and not by works. Now, some preacher who come and say faith is something that we cause ourselves. So you have to activate it. Everybody has faith. All they need to do is just make a good decision. No, that's not how it works. Faith is a gift 
of God to only as many as are saved and should be saved. To as many as were given to Christ by God and apart from God causing a person to see and believe they cannot receive this truth. And anyone who has not received this truth of Christ is not a righteous person no matter what they do, even Oprah. Oprah is not a righteous person because she denies Christ. She has done a lot of things with her money, but she is not a righteous person. There's nothing wrong with giving out money. Okay? Nothing wrong with philanthropy. But heaven cannot be opened with money. That's the issue. Heaven cannot be. The doors of heaven cannot be opened using US dollars. It's not going to work. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. But what was the it? What was the it that God credited to Abraham's account? It was not faith, but the righteousness of Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ that God freely imputed, credited, charged to a sinner's account. Because God only has one way to declare a person as righteous. You have to understand these things because, Lord have mercy. When you understand these things, you realize much of what is called church is not church. It's entertainment. The preacher comes and says, well, God gave me a message when I was taking a shower. And that message has nothing to do with your salvation. He did not get it from God. When God speaks, he speaks about Christ and he speaks to the sinner, to the matter of their salvation. And this is how God does it. It is by freely crediting the righteousness of Christ to your account. Those words are very important. Freely crediting. Freely in the Greek means without a cause found in you. God makes you righteous without a reason that is found in you. Most people say Jesus this and Jesus that. Oh, aren't we all sinners? This is all just religious talk. How does God make a sinner righteous? By freely imputing the righteousness of Christ to their account. There's no other way that works that makes God the just and justifier of his people. And I see in our time a lot of preachers who downplay the imputation of righteousness as something that is not enough. They even write on their Facebooks and say, oh, these guys are always talking about imputation. Well, if you're not talking imputation, you're not preaching the gospel. You are not preaching the gospel. They are attacking it and pushing what they call personal righteousness, personal holiness and progressive sanctification where the sinner gets better and better and better and they sin less and less until they're almost reaching. <laughs> Very popular teaching, actually. Progressive sanctification. The sinner just building their own tower of Babel to heaven. Hmm? 
But if we don't play the imputation of Christ's righteousness as the only just grounds for a sinner to approach God, you are not saved. If imputation is not our testimony, we do not believe the gospel. If there's no free crediting of righteousness, then there's none who makes it to heaven. We are still condemned in our sins. We can't make it to heaven by good works. Mother Teresa is very well known across the world, very popular, and her testimony very popular. And she's popular not because of the gospel, but because of her own works. The Romans, the Roman Catholics will say she is a saint, and by that they mean she is such or was such a wonderful, good person, kind person who worked so hard. And thus she is saved. That's false. Saint does not mean a wonderful person. The Greek word is hagios. It means one who has been set apart by God. Anyone, even someone who has a keg of beer drinking it, if they are in Christ, they are a saint. Okay? You cannot make it to heaven by good works. If you go and read some of the literature on Mother Teresa, she had a very horrible last part of her life because of lack of assurance of her salvation. Because she discovered all the works that she had done could never suit her conscience, give her a clear conscience that it was well between her and God. Her works were not good enough to give her a clear and good conscience. Because works, when it comes to salvation, they may become like drinking salty water when you're thirsty. You drink salt water, you get more thirsty. You want more water, you drink more salt. And guess what? You're going to die. That works for you in respect of salvation. So be careful of how you're hearing. Because heaven is too far to reach by man's righteousness. So God has to grant us grace and repentance unto the righteousness of Christ. And if God did not grant Mother Teresa the repentance unto salvation, then she is not there. And repentance does not mean stop your sin to be saved either. You see, this is why I don't like people who don't teach. I don't like 25-minute messages because a lot of preachers get away with murder they don't deal with the text. They don't labor in the text to explain what these things mean. If God says, Rachel, you have to repent of your sins to be saved, then 100% guaranteed Rachel is condemned. Because as soon as she has repented from a sin, two minutes later she's going to do it again. She's going to do it next week. She's going to do it five weeks from now. Do it next year in one format or another. So if God says, repent of your sins to be saved, you're in trouble. And it's not there in the Bible. The Bible does not talk of repentance 
in terms of you stopping sinning because you can't stop sinning. Repentance is a change of mind of what makes you righteous before God. Change of mind. That's what repentance means. Because a lot of people think that they can be made right by something that they do and God says, no, change your mind about what makes you righteous and come to Christ, the righteous one. So the turning away from yourself to Christ is what repentance is. But sin, you're going to sin. Even if I lock you up in this basement for the next 50 years, you're going to be sitting right by yourself here. I'm serious. You're going to be sitting. So, so Paul is going to connect for us as we go to our last two verses through something that relates to us in our everyday life to explain the understanding of the gospel. In verse 4 and 5, he says, Romans 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. To the one who works, one who does their 9 to 5, their paycheck is not counted as grace by the employer, but as debt owed. The employer is not giving you a paycheck by grace. Otherwise, I'm in line too for that. Just going and getting a paycheck by grace. I'm in line. When you go to work, the employer owes you for the time and effort that you have put in to work for them. So at the end of the month, what you get is what you actually end. You end that. It was your sweat, blood, and tears. It is debt owed to you by the company. If they don't pay you, you sue them because you worked for them. Yeah? And this is what Paul is saying. By that principle, he is saying salvation cannot be by your works. Because if that is true, then God has to give it to you as a paycheck, as something that is owed you by him. And God says, no, I don't have anyone on my payroll. He does not owe anyone anything. So he's never ever going to give salvation as if it is a paycheck that you end. It is by grace alone. Verse 5. But to him who does not work, so the contrast, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. To him who does not work. That is lazy boy theology. I love it. You have to know, you have to know Romans 4, 1 to 5. You can even go further down when we go to the next messages. But you have to know this. You have to know this. Lazy boy theology is most wonderful. Lazy boy kick it and relax gospel. He who does not work for salvation, but believes on him who justifies who? The ungodly. 
God justifies the ungodly people. Not the righteous people, but the ungodly people. The real sinners. Real sinners, because there are a lot of pretend sinners. They are real sinners. God says his faith is accounted for righteousness. The faith of Christ, the obedience of Christ is accounted to them for righteousness. The perfect record of Jesus is what God credits into the account for righteousness. Do you see that? That's what God counts as righteousness. Faith is not the cause of righteousness. As I said, it is the evidence of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. This is very scandalous. It's very scandalous to religious people who want to judge you by the things that you are doing or not doing. I'm very stubborn when it comes to this. Because people will steal your joy. They will make you feel condemned. You live your life in fear of a God who has already reconciled himself to you. Of a God who loves you. And has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay? So people do not like this teaching. The moment that you teach this. Talk to my Cincinnati sisters. They know. Talk to Sean. Sean will get on Facebook two times a month and then get side of it. He's out. He's back again. He's in trouble again. He's out. He's in... <laughs> yeah? Once you start talking like this, your biggest enemies are not the atheist people. They're the church people. Push this. Push this stuff. And see how many enemies, how popular you get. People are going to hate you. That's the truth. Okay? So they'll call you something like, or you antinomians, which means you who hate the law of God. Antinomians. Uh, I think a lot of things have been written about me to that effect. You who hate the law of God because I'm telling people that you cannot be made righteous by something that you do. And they think, oh, I'm going about stealing from people's homes and beating up people. And so I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. So hear this again as we close. Him who does not work, that is contrary to natural human religion. We are used to working to get stuff and approval. And God says, no, you all are on God's footsteps. You are on God's cheese in salvation. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of bad rap about the politics of footsteps. But when it comes to salvation, all those who are saved are collecting footsteps from God. It is the biggest footstep program there is in the history of humanity. <laughs> Scandalous. Okay? Him who does not work. But God says, come and put down your tools of labor and rest. 
my yoke is easy and my burden light. That's what Jesus said, right? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That is lazy boy theology. That's what Jesus said. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Come, you who are weary and heavy laden and find rest in him because it's done. Salvation is for those who do not work for it. You don't have to do anything to end salvation. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. Baptism is for those who are saved. You're acknowledging your union with Christ Jesus for what he has done for you. We do not do anything to cause salvation. It is imposed on us. Romans 11.6 should know all these verses because when you get in trouble, you have to find somewhere to run to. <laughs> Paul says, and if by grace, if salvation is by grace, then it is no longer of works. See the contrast. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, otherwise work is no longer work. <laughs> what is Paul saying? Grace and works do not mix to make you righteous before God. It's either grace alone or it's works alone. But it's never grace plus works. Otherwise, you destroy the definition of grace. And you also destroy the definition of, of, of works. Okay? So what God works in us is not the basis of your standing before God. You're going to have good seasons and bad seasons. You're going to have good seasons where God uses you in a meaningful way in the church or in your life. You're going to have seasons that are just dry. That does not change your standing before God. Okay? So, in conclusion, God is in the imputation business. This is a word that you have to know. You have to master this word. This imputation. It is the heart of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. He is the God of crediting things freely from one account to another. God is the master accountant. I know our brother Ron here is an accountant. And sure. Master accountant. All our professions are gospel professions. God is preaching. With every one of them, he is preaching. And he is all that in Christ. God is the ultimate lawyer. Christ is our advocate. He knows everything law. So he's able to stand and defend you before God. So God, as the accountant, he has credited the sin of Adam to you and I. That's what he did. And made us guilty for something that we did not do. We were not in the garden. But he made us guilty by imputation. But then he did not stop there. He credited the sin that was on us to Christ. He kept moving. And then he did not stop there. 
Christ paid and then God credited the righteousness of Christ back to us. We did not cause our condemnation as much as we do not cause our salvation. So everything is happening between the two Adams, first Adam causing trouble and the second Adam giving us life and righteousness. So this transaction of salvation is legal. It is forensic. These are the theological terms that are used to describe justification. That is, legal is forensic with respect to the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And the idea is, when God makes you righteous, you do not feel righteous. Because a lot of people are trying to feel righteous. They want to do righteousness. And they think doing righteousness is going and feeding the hungry and the poor and stuff like that. There are a lot of condemned people who are feeding the poor. You don't feel righteousness. You believe the righteousness. Okay? So, to be justified means God has pronounced you. He he has made a pronouncement as the judge in his court that you are not guilty before him because of the righteousness of Christ. Christ has made or has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf. Okay, something that I'll speak to uh, in the next message. Both are going to still be talking about imputation. Christ has fulfilled, he has satisfied all the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf. So righteousness with respect to the gospel is respecting to that righteousness that God has given you in Christ. And it is a legal transaction. It is not something that you actually feel. So it is normal to be saved and yet struggle with sin. Because people will say, oh, but I've been saved. I've given my life to Jesus. Okay, that's a false statement. There's no one who gives their life to Jesus. Jesus is the one who gave his life for his people. It's Jesus who died. Okay, that's a lie. So I've given my life to Jesus, the testimony goes. But I still struggle with this sin, brother. I don't know if I'm saved. Now I have to go back and start again and teaching all the basics, the foundation of the gospel. It's a lot of work to be a preacher. But these questions come every other day. I'm not feeling righteous. I have this thing that is causing me trouble. I can't do this. I can't. No. When you are righteous, you know because you believe. Some sins will come. Some sins you overcome. It's going to be up and down until God calls you home. Try the best that you can to be a decent citizen, decent person. But knowing that your standing before God has already been established. And if you have understood the matter of imputation, and believe that this is the only plea you have of righteousness before God, then God has taught you, not me. If you found something to exchange for your soul, you have denied yourself, and you have carried the cross. If you have understood the matter of how a sinner is made right, 
with God. How they shall meet with the Holy God and not die. God has been very kind to you. If you have understood this, God has been extremely kind to you. Also, it means now you can live your life in joy because you can't mess this up. And I actually also say that you cannot live your life unless you are ready to die. As long as you are not ready to die, you cannot live your life. But once you know that it's okay for me to die here and now, or die next week, or die 50 years from now, then you can enjoy your life. Because there's nothing that's going to happen in between that will mess up what God has already done for us in Christ. So, salvation is too important to God to be given to men and women to keep it for themselves. They'll mess it up. It will be eaten up by the Joe Biden inflation. Okay, look at the gas prices. Okay, if that was your salvation, it would be losing value. No, you have to think about it. If that was your salvation, then you're losing value. Suddenly, if you set it off at 100%, right now you are working at 97%, you're trying to breach the 3% to make it back in again, right, Sister Cora? <laughs> So stay on the narrow way. That is the way of life. Acceptance with God. The grace only way. Christ's only way. And it is free. That is lazy boy. Theology. And may God grant the light. Amen. We're done. Uh, let us pray. Our dear and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that you've granted us to hear many words. We pray, Lord, for grace to remember what was said, to commit to heart these wonderful truths about our salvation in Christ. We know our flesh burdens us because we don't really understand the things that really matter. But if we understood what Christ has done for us and understood of the glory that he has, the glory that we shall also share in and behold, Lord, we would sit at the feet of Christ as Mary did, hearing and learning for our own edification. We pray for all those who are gathered here this morning. Be with them. Thank you for the time that you've granted us. Uh, to fellowship in the truth and also to fellowship as family, as friends. May Christ be honored in all things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.